I'm going to take my time and just do chapter 12. And um, we'll be doing some cross-referencing. I want to do some uh, background to it. Uh, When we come to chapters um, 12 through 14, we come to the prophetic aspect connected with the second coming of the Lord. Uh, This is the second and final division of the last major section of Zechariah. I mentioned to you that Zechariah is divided up into three different sections uh, before the temple's built, after the temple is built. And then these chapters here, um, beginning with 11, which we'll come back and do a little review on, uh, talk about the betrayal of the Lord, uh, him being rejected and the Antichrist being accepted. But beginning with 12, 13, and 14, this is the final portion of the book of Zechariah, this section that we're in right now gives us information that it's not just hit and miss and God's not sovereign in control of everything. This has to happen. So what we're reading tonight explains to us what's going to happen. Primarily the focal point is going to be Israel. And it's gonna be referred to as a cup of trembling. Very interesting terminology, a cup of trembling, as it describes Israel in these last days. Now, if you go back to chapter 11, just as a little bit in way of review leading up to this, let me um, pick it up in verse um, 12. We're talking about a couple of different issues, and one thing I pointed out on Sunday where you can have a double prophecy. And it can switch real gear from, it can switch real quickly from one train of thought to a whole completely different train of thought. And we mentioned um, on Sunday, uh, as we went and quoted the last couple of verses of Malachi, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before that great and terrible day of the Lord, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back towards the parents. And it clearly says, it's referring to Elijah. But then, we went to the New Testament, and Jesus used those same scriptures, and he says, if you can, if you can accept this, um, I will turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children, and the hearts of the children towards the parents. He says, this is a fulfillment of John the Baptist. So we call it a double prophecy. Old Testament is clearly Elijah, and it is Elijah. And then he tells them in Matthew 11 and 17 that John the Baptist is Elijah. How's that for a mind blower? But my point is this. It was a completely different train of thought. You think you understand it, but then the Lord shines more light on it. And we talked about the spirit of Elijah being on Elijah, Elisha, a double portion, and that same spirit on John the Baptist. And that was basically, if you want more info on that, you have to get the, uh, go online uh, and, and uh, get that study there. <clears throat> but if you look at chapter 11, verse 12, it's switching gears where it says, then I said to them, if it's agreeable to you, uh, give me my wages, and if not, refrain, So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that pricely price, 
that is set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw them in the house of the Lord for the potter. Well, this is exactly what Judas Iscariot did. He sought an opportunity to betray the Lord. What do you give me for it? A price of a servant in the Old Testament was 30 pieces of silver. And um, Judas took that 30 pieces of silver, felt guilty about it, decided he didn't want it. He takes it back to the religious leaders who want to kill the Lord. And they said, that's your problem, not my problem. It's your problem. That's blood money. And uh, we talk about hypocrisy. Um, We can't put it back in the treasury. And so Judas throws it down. They said, we can't put it back in the treasury. So they bought a potter's field. And then when you go to the New Testament, that's where we find out Judas went out and hung himself because of um, the guilt that he, he felt of over what he did. And my whole point of all this is simply this was fulfilling Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Right down to the point, not only how much it was, he was betrayed for, but what they did with the money afterwards. They bought a potter's field, which was a place where they um, buried poor people or people that were just passing through. Then, again, we're going to switch gears from um, the betrayal of the real Messiah, and this is is going to play in tonight, the betrayal of the real Messiah and what Israel is going to go through as a result of that betrayal. Then I will cut my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And the Lord said to me, next take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. All right, now we're switching gears again. The verses that I just read refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I've come in my Father's name, and you have not received me. Another is going to come in his own name, and him you're going to receive. That's what we're switching gears from. We're going from Jesus Christ to the Antichrist. In verse 16, for indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken. Why did Jesus come, Isaiah said? To heal the brokenhearted. That's one of the things that he came to do. What does this one do? He could care less. He will not care for the the broken, nor feed those that still stand, but he will eat the flesh of the fat and, and tear the hooves in pieces, And then it says, woe to the, and depending upon what version of Bible you have here, it's either idle shepherd or worthless shepherd. It is a reference to the Antichrist that we studied at uh, Revelation 6 verse 1. He is a rider on a white horse when the first seal is open. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely uh, wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Now, I gave you my opinion, and I thought what this meant. It could be in reference to Revelation 13, where he is assassinated, and it was called a deadly wound to his head. And um, 
why this information here, it will be against his right eye and his arm that withers, why tell us that? When I read stuff like that, why give us that kind of information? And this is just my speculation. But I, I, I know that it's talking about the Antichrist. And I think it has something to do with him coming back to life. And we're told uh, at this point that um, they worshiped the dragon who gave him his power and authority and all the world now worship, worships him. Um, does he have a withered eye? Uh, and, and he's still alive? Is his arm still like this, withered down? Don't know. But that's how chapter 11 ends. We have the rejection of the true Messiah and the acceptance uh, and eventually, world. by the time we get to Revelation 13, worldwide worship. Um, and if you don't, you die. It's that simple. And with that much of a background, chapter 12 deals with the final siege of Jerusalem and the lifting of that siege. Jerusalem is going to be mentioned 10 times in this chapter. And in that day is mentioned seven times. Uh, These two expressions occur again and again. In that day is a reference to the day of the Lord, which begins with the great tribulation period. And uh, it goes into the millennial kingdom when the Lord Jesus will usher in when he comes again. The Antichrist brings in the great tribulation. Taking notes, Revelation 6, verse 1. He brings it in. But the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he brings in the kingdom age. And what we're going to be reading tonight is the battle that leads up to um, all the nations. And I want to emphasize this so you don't get it mixed up with the Ezekiel 38 war or another war. Um, These are all the nations um, of of the, the world that we have in view here. And for background, well, let's, um, I'm just gonna read the first couple of verses, and then I wanna go to the book of Jeremiah because this period of time is Jewish. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And I actually wanna take you, and I wanna take you through that chapter because this really is only 13 verses long. There's two main thoughts. And I thought Jeremiah does a better job of adding more detail in actually this section of it here. So with that being said, let's go back to the book of Jeremiah. And let me draw your attention to chapter 30. Pick it up with verse 1. The restoration to the land. So this would be pre-1948 was what we have in view here. Uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speak to the Lord God of Israel, write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, uh, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, 
So even the terminology here, um, we're going to find in Zechariah a cup of trembling. We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask thou and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? With all the heavy stuff going up, can I lighten things up a little bit here or something I saw in the news tonight? Somebody just say yes. Oh, thank you. I was going to do it anyway, but... They showed this woman, eight and a half months pregnant, and she's a runner. And she says she's, got, she's gonna go out and run the mile. And uh, her, her husband says, you're crazy, uh, you wanna bet? She says, yeah, I'll bet you." And uh, it shows her, eight and a half months pregnant, and she ran the mile in uh, five minutes and 27 seconds. That's a fast time. But it's a faster time when you're about ready to be delivered. I mean, you can see her just bobbing down or something bobbing as she's running around the, around the track. That's not in my notes, but it made me think of it here. Because the, the idea is that uh, the gals that you've had children, you know the pain of labor. It is very, very painful. And it's saying that um, now it's referring to men who are like a woman in labor and all their faces turn pale. Well, it reminds me of Revelation chapter nine when the pit is open and the demon locusts are released and they had such pain um, as a result. They couldn't kill them. But the torment that they went through as far as pain is described very accurately in Revelation 9. All right, here's the verse that I want to get to. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. There's coming a time that has never been, nor ever will be again, and unless those days are shortened, no flesh would Remain. There's none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is dealing not with the church. The church has been taken out in chapter four. People will get saved during this period of time. But it is Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. We'll get into more deal with that uh, next week. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up for them. Now, on this, it's implying here and in other scriptures that David is set up, the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is going to be in the new Jerusalem. Axis 2 and I believe instantaneous access from the New Jerusalem to planet Earth, where we're told we're gonna to rule and reign with him. But David, as far as the millennial temple is concerned, and if you wanna do your own homework on that, then you need to read Ezekiel 40 through 48, which gives extreme detail, even measurements, of the millennial 
uh, temple. That's there. And evidently, what this verse is implying is that David, their king, well, the Lord is the king, but he is sitting um, and he'll be representing, let's just put it that way, the Lord Jesus Christ on planet Earth, whom I will raise up for them. Well, who are the them? Well, these are the people that made it into the millennial kingdom. Verse 10, therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. And though I make a full end of all nations when I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Now what he's getting into here is why they have to go through this seven-year period of time. He has to deal with them. What we're going to learn tonight is the result and the emotional impact that it has on them when they, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll get that when we go back to Zechariah. Your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicine. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wounds of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. You know what the most, um, uh, if, if you Google, what is the most sinful city in the world? And you would say, how about San Francisco? Oh, Las Vegas must be on top of the list somewhere. It's not. You know what it is? Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. You know what they consider to be the most holy city in the world? That's an easy one, come on. Jerusalem. They're a couple hours apart. So you have the worst and the best. I could get into stories that it's embarrassing when we, we, uh, we spend the first night in Tel Aviv when we take a group there. And um, I know what's coming as soon as we get off the bus. They're calling cards with girls' pictures on them and telephone numbers. That's how easy it is. Um, I have some friends that actually, uh, in Safat, which is up in the Galilee, their main ministry was working with the girls that became prostitutes from, from Russia. It's the only way they could survive. And we had our, Calvary Chapel had our own ministry there, Calvary Chapel of, of uh, Tel Aviv. And their, their whole role was to help the girls get off the street and take them up to Shafat, which is um, um, a place in, in the northern, just north of the uh, uh, Monte Beatitudes. Anyway, um, because of the multitude of your sins and your cruelty, um, Because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Verse 16, therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. In other words, those that come against Israel. All your adversaries, every one of them will go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you 
and heal you of your wounds. So discipline is being implied. And let's make it personal. It tells us that the judgment of God starts first in the household of God. Good place for it, amen. And this is what Hebrews 12 is all about, the necessity for chastisement. He says, which of your fathers haven't disciplined your sons? Well, maybe not so much these days, but I, I grew up knowing what the woodshed was all about <laughs> and being disciplined. And um, he says, how much more will your heavenly father uh, not correct um, his own people? And that's what's happening to the nation as they go through this seven-year period of time. All right? And heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast. Well, that's where we get the terminology, the wandering Jews. This is Zion, no one seeks her. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them. Now we're moving and hope is now being restored that after they go through this process, he wants to bless them again and multiply them and they shall not diminish I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children shall also, as before, their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them. Their governors shall come from the midst. Then I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who who pledges his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until it has done it. Revelation 6, verse 17, the wrath of the Lamb. And here it's called the fierce anger of the Lord. And until he has performed his intent of his heart. Now catch this last verse. In the latter days you will consider it. Isn't that an interesting verse? What did the Lord tell Daniel? Daniel in chapter 12 says, Lord, I'm not getting all this. Fill me in on the details. He says, no, Daniel, because it's shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Then many will travel to and fro. Knowledge will increase. None of the wicked will understand it, but those who are wise will understand it. Nobody except for a handful of hardcore, I don't understand this, but if the Bible says it, uh, during the last 2,000 years of the church age, when there was no Israel. I mean, after 70 AD, They were scattered to every nation in the world. But yet most of the book of Revelation and what we're reading right here is about God dealing with them so that he can work in their heart. And then it says, in the last days they will consider it. Well, let me tell you, it says May 14th, 1948. I'll be talking about it in just a second. 
They've been considering it. They don't get it all yet, but they will. And I love this last verse. In the latter days, we are living in the last of the latter days. In the latter days, you will consider it. Let's go back to Zechariah. And um, our first verse with that much of a background, let me talk about the regathering of, of the nations. Let's see if I want to use this as background. I'll hit on it a couple of times. Let's just read the first couple of verses. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. I'm going to come back and talk about that with just a little bit. Um, since the turn of the century, since the Bellflower Declaration, after World War II, because of the Holocaust, there was a softening towards the Jewish people. And as a result, land was given to them. Britain had it at the time. The Ottoman Empire had it for many, many hundreds of years. But after World War II, the Brits were the ones that really um, had the sway in that part of the world. And they decided to give Israel a portions of land. Now, since that time, um, there's been this regathering of people back into the land. We did a little research today on this. When a Jewish person goes back to Israel, it's called making aliyah, which is actually making you a citizen once again, even though you're Jewish, you go through this process called making aliyah. And it's happening with, um, uh, right now, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, just last week, declared, as of today, the Ethiopian Jews can come back. There's 8,000 of them. 2,000 of them are in process right now as we speak. And the way I understand it, it's going to be in 2,000 people increments until all the Ethiopian Jews are back in Israel. Because of the pandemic, I couldn't really give you accurate numbers because there's sort of, not sort of a shutdown, there is a shutdown. So we had to go back to 2019 where they had 2,283 Jews from around the world coming back. This year, the uh, percentage of applications is 152%. That's going up. And a lot of it, they're saying the reason is, is because of the pandemic. So as we get into this chapter, here's sort of the order of events of verses 1 through 14. We're going to have a return um, to the land, and we're going to have Jerusalem become a problem with the rest of the world. And then we're going to actually see the battle of Armageddon. When we read in verse one, the burden of the Lord, the word burden there uh, can either be translated a prophecy or a judgment. Uh, 
the burden of the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heaven, lays the foundation, and he forms the spirit of man within him. I find this interesting. The Bible says man looks at the outward appearance when you look at somebody. And um, that's how we're programmed. But it says the Lord looks at the heart. Hebrews 4.12, where it talks, it talks about the soul of this. Um, Hebrews 4.12 is a verse that says, the word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. What does that mean? That means I am a soul and spirit and they are so uniquely connected and so finely connected, it's almost impossible to make a distinction between the two. But the bottom line is this, the Lord says in this verse here, he is the one that formed the soul and the spirit of a man. This is, all no, this is nothing. This is my hand, my wrist, this is my ear here. My nose here. That's not, none of that is me. It's just the vessel that contain my soul and my spirit. And everybody's soul and spirit is a little bit unique and different than somebody else's. You wanna know why you're so valuable to the Lord? You're one of a kind. How do we judge the value of something? It's rareness. And so, even identical twins don't have identical personalities. They're still unique in some certain special way. But what Zechariah is doing here in this first verse, that God is the one who forms that personality, that character, who you are. You are soul, and you are spirit, and you are eternal. Angels are also eternal. The Bible said the reason that there is a hell is that he created it for the devil and his angels. Um, as long as I'm on the subject, I'll talk about a false doctrine called the doctrine of annihilationism. That doctrine is when people who don't let their personal feelings get have a higher priority than what the word of God teaches, they said no loving God would ever let a person spend eternity in a place called hell. And um, because they're leaning upon their own personal emotion, instead of what the scripture teaches. Uh, an annihilationist is somebody who believes it would be, if you're Catholic terminology, it would be like a purgatory. All right, you suffer for a little while, and then if you have enough masses and somebody lights enough candles for you, you'll eventually get out of there. I mean, if I believed that for a second, and I thought my mom or dad was in hell, you don't think I'd empty my bank account? Trust me, it's not much. <laughs> you don't think that I'd empty that out if I thought for a second that that was true? So they come up with this thing called purgatory. It's not biblical. You know what else isn't biblical that the Pope just came out with today? Yeah, the Pope today just announced that it's okay to be gay, lesbian, whatever you want to be. And um, that's today. He made it, that's what was on the evening news tonight. And um, so he's putting his authority as a vicar of Christ 
above clearly what the word of God says. Do I want to really get politically incorrect tonight? Okay, I will. (laughs) This is not a gray area, my friends. And because people are passive and they're afraid people will leave the church or the ties will go down or whatever if you speak the truth. Well, the truth is, Romans 1 says that in um, these last days, they will do things that are not natural. Uh, Men with men, women with women. It's one of the few places where the word abomination is used. That sounds like a pretty hard word. It is. Leviticus clearly talks about the judgment that would fall upon what has been now commonly accepted for quite, it's been growing and growing and growing over the last 20 years. But now the Pope comes out and stamps his approval on it. Uh, We'll be talking about Roman Catholicism when we get to Revelation 18. But I can get sidetracked very, very easily just talking about just the soul, uh, intriguing the soul and spirit of a human being because that's who you really are. All right, verse two. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of, it says here, drunkenness, but it's trembling to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to work my way up to this burden that we call Israel. And since they became a nation, in 1948, when um, they declared themselves a nation, they were immediately attacked on all fronts. And they won. When they became a nation, they became a problem. They became a cup of trembling. Well, that was 48. In 1967, we call it the Six-Day War. Um, Let me read a paragraph that we took off the internet today. Invoking its inherent right of self-defense, Israel preempted the inevitable attack. They knew that Egypt was going to be involved in a six-day war. So they did a preemptive attack, and before their air force could get off the grounds in Egypt, um, their, the planes were still on the ground, they took them all out. They didn't, have, they didn't have an air force because Israel knew it was coming, and so they took an offensive preemptive move, and they just wiped out Egyptians' uh, uh, their, their planes. And then they were threatened by Syria in the north. Israel had not planned on fighting a third front in the east. Now the east of Israel would be Jordan. King Nan was King Hussein, ignored Israel's message to refrain from joining the war and threw his troops into the battle. Israel had no choice but to quickly counterattack In so doing, they captured the Jordanian-occupied West Bank. And that's where we get that terminology from today. That was the 67 more. My point here is when they're back, they're gonna become a cup of trembling. Nobody wants them there. So what's happening, the next one was what we call the Yom Kippur War. It happened on October 7th, 1973, 
And uh, it completely caught them off guard because it was Yom Kippur. They weren't expecting war. They were in synagogue. They were reflecting. And um, what's your point, Dwight? Well, since Israel went back, there's a 48 war, there's a 67 war, there's a 73 war, and we know Ezekiel 38 is on the horizon. And, um, uh, and then we have, of course, uh, the war of, we'll be looking at tonight, the battle of Armageddon, where the nations, plural, all of them, will come against Jerusalem. So when we read here that I'm gonna make Jerusalem a cup of trembling, there haven't been a cup of trembling for 2,000 years. And all of a sudden since, what, 48? How many major wars, 67? 48, 67, 73? And, uh, and now Iran is talking tough uh, and calling for the annihilation. Turkey's on, uh, Erdogan and, and Turkey's on the same page with him. Yes, there are peace agreements being made to Trump's credit and Benjamin Netanyahu's credit. So there are people that want to have peace, but there are others, that's what the Ezekiel 38 war is all about, coming after Israel's riches. All right, verses three through nine. And it will happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. And who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all the nations of the earth are gathered against it. Now in that day I made mention is a reoccurring phrase here. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its riders with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah. I will strike every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. Again, in that day, I will make the governor of Judah like a fire pan in a woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. The Lord will save the tents of Judah First, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. David was a complete man as far as I'm concerned in every aspect. Spiritually, he was a man after God's own heart. As far as a musician, when they wanted the best and Saul was being disturbed by demonic spirits or whatever, they said, who's the best musician in the land? They said, Eric Edwards. <laughs> oh, I, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm getting time warp, time warp here, problem. No, it was David and everybody knew it. So, but then the fighters here are gonna be like David. David and Jonathan by themselves, took out a whole garrison of Philistines. And uh, Jonathan said, David, are you sure about this one? And he said, yeah, let's, let's go get him. The Lord is with us. And it said they scurried up the hill. They didn't sneak around and come around the back. No, they went right at him. 
and they took them all out, every single one of them. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. So the men that are feeble are gonna be like David. And that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before him. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. Turn with me as I take a a little pause. I want you to turn to two places. Haggai, chapter 2, and Psalm 2. So I'll give you a moment to find both of those places. Haggai is right after um, Zephaniah and right before Zechariah. So just go back one chapter to chapter 2. And um, I'm going to read verses 20 through 22. The future destruction of the nations. Verse 20 says, again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Turn to Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two is what we call a prophetic psalm. And it deals with the battle of Armageddon that we're making our way up to. And it's 12 verses long and we're gonna read all of them. Why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So they're saying, okay, we're gonna go and fight against God now. Here's the Lord's response. Verse four, he who sits in heaven shall laugh and the Lord will hold him in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath. Revelation 20, when the Lord comes back on that white stallion with a robe that says, Lord of Lord and King of Kings, it says a sharp two-edged sword. In other words, he's just gonna speak it. He spoke everything into existence. Good place for an amen. Just the word of his power. He spoke it into existence. And now it says here, in his wrath he's gonna speak. It's a picture of the sword. And they are history. It's over. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill Zion. I will declare the decree. Now he's speaking about Jesus. I declare the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. That's what's going to happen. The father's gonna give everything to the son. 
And um, the last uh, verse here is now instructions. They won't listen, maybe some will. But he's speaking now to these kings that are going to come against the Lord. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. Again, Revelation 6 verse 17 is the wrath of the lamb that unfolds a seven-year period of time. Let's go back and finish up Zechariah. That's one main thought. The second main thought of chapter 12 of Zechariah, I cannot put into words. First of all, I'd have to be Jewish. Second of all, let's just read it and then I'll, I'll try to explain it as a Gentile, but it can only be expressed in terms of somebody that has been waiting and longing. It makes me think of the fiddler on the roof when they were kicked out of their little village in, in Russia. And I, I forget who said it as he's talking to the rabbi, as they have to leave town and nobody knows where they're going. And he says, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? And so that's the hope that they have that's embedded into a a, a Jewish person that's devout in his Judaism. Here's their emotion, picking it up in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his own son and grieves for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Now you'd have to have be a mother and have lost your firstborn son and again, uh, I don't have the adequate words to talk about um, what they're experiencing emotionally. Why? The re- realization it was Jesus all the time, the one that they had rejected. And now they will look at him, the one whom they have pierced. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadab Rimen, at the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself. Now, this, again, will brings you to the depth of what's starting to settle in. It's slowly sinking in what they've done. And it's at a point where you don't want to be with anybody. I got to take this in by myself. I got to get somewhere where I let this settle. What do you mean? He was the Messiah. That reality is settling in. And so the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, the wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself, and their wives by themselves. Leave me alone. I can't handle what I just found out to be true. That when Jesus comes back, as king of king and lord of lords and brings an end to the battle of Armageddon, it was Jesus all along. 
Okay, just one verse I want to share in closing, and we'll get into it more next week. Just look at verse six of chapter 13. Somebody comes up to Jesus and asks this question. And someone will say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Talk about a dart to the heart. And again, I can't adequately put the words here when your whole thought, your whole emotion is not towards Jesus being the Messiah. And what, what we have uh, gone through tonight is basically Jerusalem becoming a cup of trembling. So either it is or it hasn't been since it became a nation again. You want me to go through the wars again? They're all there. Anti-Semitism is at an all-time high. Every day it goes up more and more. It's become a cup of trembling. It's gonna, what we learned tonight is gonna take them into a period of time where they have to be refined, broken, to the point where next week we'll actually show where they actually call out upon the Lord. And then, again, this is what's interesting to me. It's Wednesday night, we're in Zechariah chapter 12. Sunday morning, we're in Revelation chapter 12, which deals with Zechariah chapter 13. And what are the chances of that? None, as far as I'm concerned. So as the Lord goes before us, we, we um, live in incredibly difficult times, but isn't it good to know that the Lord has laid it all out ahead of us? And he doesn't pull any punches. He says, this is going to happen. And he even gets into the emotional part of it is this is how they're gonna feel. The unthinkable. Well, where did you get those wounds in your hand? Oh, my friends, my people. Leave it at that. Let's say we'll pray. Lord, in these um, times where last week we saw that you were betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver and um, introducing us to the Antichrist that'll come on the scene after we're gone. And then now dealing with Jerusalem as a cup of trembling, and they have been since they came back into the land in 1948. And then, Lord, I pray for and stand upon Genesis 12, verse 3. When you talk about the nation of Israel, that I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. Lord, we want to bless the Jewish people. Pray for um, Bibi, Prime Minister Netanyahu. And Lord, um, pray that you would open up the eyes before um, many will have to go through this terrible seven-year period of time that we read about this evening. But we're grateful that you've laid it out ahead for us and that um, your word cannot be broken. These things will come to pass. And uh, we thank you as we wind up and head up towards the closing of the book of Zechariah. So we pray you go before us the rest of this night. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen.